The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, it's Glenn Lowry. This is The Glenn Show. I'm with Sylvester James Gates, Jim Gates, professor of physics at the University of Maryland and professor of public policy there. Uh, and uh, I want you to know that The Glenn Show uh, is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, where I am a senior fellow. Uh, so welcome to The Glenn Show, Jim. Well, thank you very much, Glenn. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Professor Gates, everybody should know, is one of the most distinguished theoretical physicists walking around today. Um, he's a past president of the American Physical Society. He's a fellow of the National Academy of Sciences. He's a well-published and influential scholar, theoretical physicist. And Jim, I, I wanted to talk to you about equity and diversity issues in science, but I also want to talk to you about anything else you want to talk about since we're both, um, I don't know, senior figures. <laughs> <laughs> I think the word is superannuated. <laughs> yeah, man, of a certain age. We were both at MIT in the 70s. Uh, Jim was a mathematics and physics undergraduate and a PhD in physics. I did my economics degree at MIT in the economics department. But uh, here we are, it's the 23, 2023 now, that's a few years down the road. Um, I I'm proud to be able to have a conversation with you, Jim. Two, two old guys talking to each other. <laughs> well, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, 60 years or so almost have passed. And you know, it seems like a long time, but it really goes really quickly. Uh, tell me about it, I know. I know. And we're both black. Do you think that's significant? Wait a minute. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's very relevant to the conversation that we're going to have because, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about this in the abstract, whereas for us, this is, you know, lived experience and uh, grounded in evidence and decades of observations. So uh, I'm very happy to have this conversation you talk about proud to, I'm proud just to be, for you to allow a mutt like me on your show. Oh, I don't know about all of that. Uh, Supersymmetry, this is, I uh, try to understand these ideas that you work on, man. It's just maybe just one step over the horizon for me. I'm not sure I can. <laughs> well, if you want to start with my science, uh, I'm always happy, of course, to, to do that. Uh, so the idea basically is if you, if you look at nature, broadly speaking, there are two kinds of things when you think about objects that are smaller than atoms. Uh, there are things like the electron, right? Everybody knows about electrons because electronics depends on it. And electrons are, uh, obey one set of mathematical equations. But then there are also things like particles of light or uh, in the news more recently, the thing called the Higgs boson that a lot of your listeners probably have heard about. And it turns out that the equations that those things obey are very different from the equations that things like the electron obey. And so for a long time, uh, no one ever had any uh, 
inkling into maybe these two kinds of objects are related. But the idea of supersymmetry is that they are intimately related. And the way to think of it is one is yin and the other is yang. And so there are equations that do this. They were first thought of in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. And interestingly enough, some of the contributions to this thinking uh, was in Ukraine at the Kharkiv Institute for Theoretical Physics. And um, I was, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, you and I were both at MIT, uh, for me, starting in 1969. And, and I don't know when you, I think you might have been a few years ahead of me. Now, I came to a Ph.D. program in 1972, and I think okay. you finished your B.A. in 1973. So, Right. I, I was ahead of you chronologically, but you were at MIT before I was. Yes, okay. So um, back in those days, no one in the United States knew anything about this kind of mathematics. And so, I was, as you mentioned, I got my uh, bachelor's degrees in 1973 after four years uh, I couldn't make up my mind, so I took two bachelor's degrees, one in math and one in <laughs> physics. And it's literally true that that's an accident. That's a whole other story. So in 73, I started graduate school, and I'm trying to figure out how I can position myself so that I can have a career that lasts my entire lifetime. Now, I've been interested in science starting at four years old. And so unlike a lot of people, I always knew what I wanted to do. I didn't know if the world would let me do it particularly because I'm an African-American. Uh, my parents actually found, had trouble finding a hospital for me to be born in Tampa, Florida in 1950. And so, mm. you know, these kinds of challenges that have always been present in the lives of African-Americans are very much part of my story. It's not nothing unusual. But when I got to MIT and was trying to figure out how to become a scientist, which had been this dream for over a decade, um, as a graduate student, I said, I need to do something where I can leave my name, at least in the physics literature. Even if it doesn't get known anywhere else, I can do something no one has done before me. And so around 1975, I looked at all the available uh, literature on uh, the study of things smaller than atoms. And in that effort, I found these papers that we're talking about this thing called supersymmetry. And it had a form of mathematics that no one else at MIT knew anything about. So I taught myself this stuff and began to find things that, since it was a new subject, began to find things no one else in the world had ever known beforehand. And so by 1977, uh, I wrote the first thesis at MIT on this subject. There may have been others in the world, but. You know, there's no world global data bank that tracks this kind of stuff. And I, um, you know, I, I had succeeded in getting to the front of a field and essentially becoming one of the uh, founders of a field, which was uh, quite exciting. I got to ask you, I don't want you to get too technical because nobody will understand it, <laughs> but I was a math undergraduate uh, major myself, and uh, I think some of the audience of the Glenn shows, you know, are, are relatively sophisticated people. Could, could you explain in layman's terms, okay, so the equations governing the electron and the equations governing the Higgs boson are apparently different, but at a deeper mathematical level, not really different. Can you explain that point? Um, let me think for a second. Uh, so 
what supersymmetry does explains this in a very sort of baroque sort of way. What it basically says is that when you think that you know the whole story, you only know half of the story. And what do I mean by that? Well, when I say you think you know the story, as you know, uh, Glenn, because I'm well aware that you you know that you had a mathematical background, as you know, uh, the way that physicists think is in terms of equations. And uh, so it starts with uh, Newton and Newton's law, which people learn in high school. But then when you get to graduate school, you find out, well, there's this thing called Maxwell's equations. It describes how electricity and magnetism works. That's a different set of equations. And then if you stay uh, as a, a, a physicist, you learn about the Schrodinger equation. And the Schrodinger equation is the basis of quantum theory. You know, quantum theory and quantum information, you know, these are all the rave in the news these days. Everyone, quantum computing, right? But the basis of those things started in the 1930s with equations. So you start with these two groups of equations to describe these things in the world. And then you ask yourself a question. You know, um, if you were walking directly north, and I, and I said, well, Glenn, I want you to walk east. Well, the way that you would do that is by simply turning, right? 90 degrees. By 90 degrees. And so the idea of supersymmetry is that if you look at these equations, there are ways of turning one equation into the other. And that's the basis of supersymmetry in non-technical terms. Oh, that's that's deep. That's that's pretty good. And you say the math was new. I mean, new math at MIT? Yeah. One of the strange things about mathematics, I often try to impress upon audiences of, of young people. I ask them the following question. I say, uh, next week, will there be more music than there is this week? And the answer is obviously yes, because people are constantly writing music and dreaming of new songs. And then I say, next week, will there be more mathematics than there is this week? And this puzzles people. But the answer is also yes. And for the same reasons, it turns out. Stop and think about how music gets created. You know, there are some songs that we all have heard in our childhood or when we're young. And if you're a creative person, you say, I want to do something like that. But you don't want to repeat what other people have done before. You want to put sort of your stuff into it. You want to... Uh, you know, have it with your flavor, as some people might say. And so the same exact process occurs in mathematics, it turns out. That if you think of the equations that, you know, we all learn in school as scores of pieces of music or like scores of pieces of music, we know that with musical scores, there's the idea of taking a variation. So you take the work of some pre-existing composer and you change some notes in some way. You could always turn, it turns out, do that with mathematics if you have learned it at high enough a level. Okay. There's always something new in mathematics. There's always something new in mathematics, just like there's always new music. Okay, diversity in the sciences. Okay, so you're an old head. You've experienced, you know, racism or whatever. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm I'm interested in your assessment of the contemporary lay of the land. Since we do live in the post-racial reckoning era, we live oh. in the era of activism and, you know, uh, and, and counter-activism. So Glenn, let's let's lay it on the table. You know, there's activism in this counter or anti-activism. However, you want to phrase it. 
So uh, let me or they just... say reaction. Excuse me for interrupting. I think that's the word reaction. Action <laughs> and reaction, according to Sir Isaac Newton. See, I could tell you were mathematically trained. Uh, that's a joke for those listeners who don't get it. We just pulled a joke, a funny y'all. So, uh, but uh, the so let me just talk about the first thing. Is there racism in science? The answer I like to say to people who ask me that question. Is the sun going to come up tomorrow? Well, the answer is yes, the sun is going to come up. And it's not something that, you know, that people are comfortable talking about. People always want to, when something's unpleasant, they, you know, they don't want to be offensive. And because when you offend someone, they close their ears and then there's no communication going back and forth, right? So let me just give you some examples. Um, I, as you know, Glenn, am... Uh, what you mentioned, I was the president of the American Physical Society in 2021. But back in the 1990s, I was the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. So, in fact, I'm the only living person I know who's been the president of both of these organizations. So, how did the National Society of Black Physicists come about? Well, there was a physicist named William Shockley, whose name I'm sure you recognize. Oh, yeah, Stanford. A Stanford, Nobel laureate. And he joined with uh, socio uh, someone in the social sciences, and they came up with this uh, statement that African Americans are not capable of mentally processing uh, the kinds of things that go on at the very boundaries of uh, science. And in fact, uh, Shockley was quite explicit in this. You're going to say something. No, I was just saying, wow. I mean, think about that for a minute. Think about that claim. African-Americans are intrinsically incapable of moving to the frontier of the human knowledge about the cosmos. I mean, that's a terrifying thing to have come out of the mouth of a Nobel laureate. And he laid it out for anyone who wishes to go back and see. He was not shy about telling that story. So when that occurred, um, uh, he, by the way, he was a member of the obvious American Physical Society. There were a few African-Americans who were a member of the organization, and they went to the leadership and they said, you know, this is this uh, is below the values of this organization, and the leadership ought to release some sort of statement. Nothing was forthcoming. And so this group, this small group of African-American physicists said, it's clear we must set up an organization not to exclude other people, not to exclude other races, but that would advocate for African-Americans moving to this frontier that Shockley says we are totally incapable of reaching. And that was the birth of the National Society of Black Physicists. So it's always been open to people of all races. Uh, it's never been exclusionary. And it states in its mission that it exists to promote the welfare of the of people of the African diaspora in the discipline of physics. That's it's just that simple. But do you think there's a, I mean, so Shockley was Shockley. He was an individual person who had the views that he had just like Watson had the views that he had and whatever. Of course. Do you think there's something systematic or systemic affecting the discipline of physics, which was reflected in the fact of Shockley, in the case at hand, saying what he said? Well, my answer is no. But I this is not universally agreed upon, even by people of the African diaspora. There are people who will tell you, people of color, that um, 
science and in physics is, Im is embedded in the way that Europeans think and uh, the kind of viewpoints of that, that the science is fatally flawed because it's embedded in that. And so what I'd like to point out is several things. Yes, it is true that physics in particular is a construction of European males. It starts with Sir Isaac Newton, and it blossoms throughout the last several century and is the basis of our of uh, bountiful living as humans today. That's a fact. However, when you look at physics, it's also a body of, of thought and observations and knowledge. And in that body of knowledge, as far as I have experienced over the last 15 years, I do not see how racism is embedded in the body of this work. Now, a lot of people will disagree with me, and, I, and I'd like to say, well, let's look at uh, basketball. Give me the names of the African-American athletes who started basketball, who invented basketball. And you're grinning because you know the answer is that was basketball was invented by a gentleman by the name of James Naismith, who was a European ethnic male, right? And that doesn't stop African-Americans to moving to the forefront and achieving at the highest level. So why should I believe because something is invented by a particular person or group of people that that prevents other groups of human beings from excelling and reaching the very outer rims of excellence in those areas. So you don't think that there, you know, is a white or European way of thinking, a linear thinking or uh, having to, not being able to see ambiguity or whatever. I mean, I, you know, I, I, yeah. don't get me, I know. I'm not I the know. one to try to explain this point of view because I don't <laughs> believe in it. But there are people who are saying, just like they're saying, that uh, indigenous peoples have a special kind of cosmology or a special kind of epistemology sure. or whatever. And, and you, I'm asking, reject no, that premise. I, no, I, I don't believe that, Glenn, because I've seen in my, I'm 72 years old. I started wanting to be a scientist when I was four years old. I have been working in science uh, since uh, 1977 or maybe 72, depending on which they do bachelor's or a PhD. So I've been 50 years looking at this stuff and thinking about how it works. And what I have found from personal experience is that yes, these kinds of social ills and moral lapses exist in the sociology around these bodies of work, but not in the bodies of work themselves. And in particular, the ways of knowing, which you refer to in you know, indigenous knowledge, it is most in my experience, at least in the sciences, where the differences occur are, are actually tied to something that Albert Einstein said. Albert Einstein once made a statement that imagination is more important than knowledge. For many years, this statement puzzled me because when I first encountered this statement, for me, imagination was what I did as a teenager, reading Marvel comic books and <laughs> drawing comic book characters and reading science fiction, Isaac Asimov, um, you know, Arthur C. Clarke. That was the use of the imagination as far as I was concerned as a young person. Knowledge was watching the space race, the moon. 
the knowledge had tangible impact on what happened away from the world of the imagination. So for Einstein to say that imagination was more important than knowledge was incomprehensible to me the first time I encountered this statement. It was at least a decade before I finally believe I got to what he was getting at, which comes back to this point about ways of thinking, and I'll tie it back to you in a moment. Um, the statement, that sentence is often repeated, but it's part of a larger statement, and the rest of the context of the statement is almost never said. And it goes something like, and I'm not going to get it exactly, but the sentiments are following. Uh, the reason, imagine, uh, knowledge uh, encompasses all that we now have observed and know. But imagination encompasses all we ever will know. And so the point is that imagination is, in fact, the driver of knowledge. In the future, we're going to have more knowledge because we have imagined and then correlated with nature by observation and experiment whether what we have imagined is an accurate description of nature as far as we can measure. Imagination drives innovation in science. That's what Einstein was getting at. And that's why it's more important, because without it, science would be static and dead and unable to evolve. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, knowledge is the cumulative past accomplishment, but imagination is the future. It, it, that's, that's where we're going from here. But, but um, let me get back to this point you, ma you made about yeah, indigenous. Because you see, where where this sort of uh, these two seers coincide with each other is exactly in the innovation. You have to bring your knowledge. I mean, you have to bring knowledge to innovation because you have to build on a foundation. Just as Isaac Newton talked about standing on the shoulders of giants, you've got to build on a foundation. But you've got to do things beyond the accomplishment of those who laid the foundation. And the only tool we have for that in science is our imagination. That's what Einstein's identifying. So now, where does, where does demography come into this? And this is something that I, I also thought about for decades before I had an answer. And the way that I got to this answer, I'm going to hopefully bring you along in the argument, and he can tell me I'm crazy. But let's look at something else. And we're going to focus on physics. Because physics comes kind of at two different uh, levels of knowing. There's physics that I can write in, in terms of F is equal MA, a piece of mathematics. And there's physics that I observe in the world and in experiments. So both of these things are physics, and one is actually intimately tied to the other. Can, do we? So there's a symbolic way of knowing physics, and there's an experiential way to, to know physics. So let's ask, is there another activity that humans engage in that had this dual that has this dualism about it. And the answer is music. Because music has scores, and that's roughly speaking equivalent to what physicists do with equations. And music also is the experience of listening to it and emotionally reacting to it. So let's look at music as a model, not just for physics, but for all sorts of mathematically based innovation. I, I, that's the first thing I posit to people. And let's just consider these two things side by side. If you do that, then something very interesting becomes more clear when you look at music. I don't know about you, Glenn, but I have a suspicion that, like me, you like a lot of classical music. I like a lot of music, but classical music is among 
my loves. When I listen to classical music, uh, whether you know, you can immediately tell a difference between the Greek and the Sati. Debussy is like Sati, but not so much like Greek. Tchaikovsky, Rimsky, Korsakov, you know, the great Russian composers. Of course, there's uh, the Europeans, Mozart, and what have you. But all of these great forms of classical music are, are actually subtly different. Chopin is another one, right? So how are they different? Well, they get to be different typically because composers, in bringing the imagination part to the story, they bring their culture to the story. And in fact, a lot of classical music is, in, is actually derived from folk music that the composers must have heard as they were growing up. Dvorak? Dvorak, for example. Uh, Dvorak, it's interesting you bring Dvorak to the table because I'm not sure how many of your listeners are deeply into music, but Dvorak, as you know, made a visit to the United States and was influenced by the music of African-Americans, right? So the point I'm trying to make here is that the bringing of imagination to the growth, to the growth of music, and especially classical music, because it's easiest to see it here, involves the culture and the demography of the people who are engaging in the activity. And what that means is that you get great music but you get great music that is a blossoming effect. It goes in all sorts of directions because culture is not a unitary, solitary thing. Different cultures bring different things to the table of the creation of music. One of my early mentors was the Nobel laureate by the name of uh, Abdus Salam, who made it possible for me to spend around five consecutive summers in Italy, where he was the director of the International Center for Theoretical Physics. The first time I met Abdus, which was around sometime in the period of 77 to 80, and I'm not quite sure when, I'd have to go back and look at my records. I gave a talk, he was in the audience, and after my presentation, he invited me to his office. And the first thing he said to me was, I didn't know that you were black. Now, <laughs> now, you know me a little bit, Glenn, and I'm not quite right. And so my thought, I didn't say the following, but my thought was, because I don't write mathematics in, in, in Ebonics or the equivalent of Ebonics. I don't use that to do my mathematics, right? But the next thing he said to me, I was thunderstruck and totally incapable of understanding. He said, and again, this is not an exact quote, this is an expression of a sentiment, that when a sufficient number of people of the African diaspora entered the field of physics, he was convinced that something like jazz would appear. And <laughs> it took me a decade or more to understand what he meant by that statement. It's the same thing that I just explained in terms of classical music, that when you let diverse cultures and demographics engage in a strenuous discipline when it comes to the creativity, the thing they will bring to the table are the subconscious things that sit in their imaginations and then are harnessed to the foundation of the discipline that you're trying to grow. That's what he meant. But it took me over a decade to understand that. And to me, this is the fundamental reason why diversity is of such importance if you are looking at STEM-based fields. 
because when you get to the point where you need creativity, and, and as I said, in my experience, creativity is driven by imagination. Imagination is irrational. It's in your subconscious. It's embedded in your culture. That's what diversity is trying to do. That's why it is important in something like STEM, at least from my set of observations over a, a lifetime of trying to do science. Well, it's fascinating to listen to you reflect. I have a lot of things flying through my mind. One of them, I just want to get on the record. Do you know Doug Hofstadter's book, Girdle, Escher, and Bach? I read it in my misspent youth. <laughs> it's been decades. I know, it's like 1980, something like that. Right, exactly. But this, this idea of this dualism between music and mathematics, and, you know, he uses the self-referential thing and Gödel's theorem and whatnot, but it's just this, like a meta. It's like you stand above, there's experience, there's formalism, and then there's a kind of higher plane altogether. Uh, and, and also your point about the reason that diversity might matter uh, is that... Uh, the, I mean, it seems to link up to me with what you were saying about Einstein and about uh, what we know and about our imagination and that it's uh, it's both of those things. You need the database, as it were, of what we know, but, you know, to determine what's the most fruitful way to go forward. But let me just ask you this. So why is it then that the foundations of the Newton and the Schrodinger equation and the Maxwell and all that are all European? Isn't there a civilizational dimension to it? So that even if somebody like Shockley, who's going to make a claim about the intrinsic capacities of different, uh, you know, peoples is wrong, there still might be something to say about the relative superiority of the European civilization that gave rise to these various discoveries. Now, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying it's a different claim than the claim that the, the people are intrinsically inferior. It's, it's saying that the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century culture in Europe that gave rise to the foundation of our scientific knowledge had something going for it that you didn't see any place else on the planet. Do you agree with that? From my reading of history, Glenn, I, I would say that's kind of obvious. Modern science is, if you, you trace our modern scientific trajectory, trajectory. Yes. Now, what's really interesting to me, because, well, you know, because I'm a scientist, people press me to think about these things over long time frames, is that there was a peculiar kind of big bang that happened. That's the only way I know how to describe it. You know, you've heard, everyone's heard about the big bang, the birth, birth of the universe, but there was apparently a big bang in evolution in the evolution of humanity, all right? So you get these peculiar events as we understand our history where for almost inexplicable reasons, particular places and circumstances occur to cause what we might now describe as a quantum leap, right? I mean, it happens repeatedly as we understand our history. And for modern science, that's the place the big bang happened. Now, it's not that no one else did science because you can, for sure. example, look at the ancient, you know, China, which is much in the discussion these days. For 5,000 years, there's been a civilization in China, and there are results, for example, in algebra, something that you will remember. There's something called Pascal's Triangle. Well, that was actually known to the ancient Chinese several thousand years before Pascal was known, was alive. 
And so it's not that other civilizations didn't do the parts that went into the scientific revolution. And gunpowder, as you well know, was invented in China, right? Uh, and so it's not that other civilizations didn't also have the parts and pieces, but what they didn't seem to have is the social structures that allowed the knowledge to flourish and blossom and propagate. And that seems to be, that to me is one of the enormous things that happened in the time of Sir Isaac Newton and the European foundations of modern science. Okay. What about the test scores? What about I'm the gaps? Not. What about test scores? Well, so here's the conservative line on how come there aren't enough black physicists. Well, they're not enough with the 95th percentile performance on the GREQ or whatever. You know, they they are not developing. I'm not going to say they don't have the potential. They're not developing that potential in a way that allows them to perform as measured by the test. And then you have others, you know, like Charles Murray and Richard Herrnstein who come along and they say, we're not saying there's no right tail in the distribution of black intellectual ability. There is, and there's people in it like Sylvester James Gates and Glenn Lowry. All we're saying is that the means are different, sorry, standard deviation gap, and that with a normal distribution, if I go far enough right, the relative number of people underneath that right tail who are in the non-black group are going to be much higher than in the black group, given this difference in the meaning of the distributions. And I, I mean, that's just a fact. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not. This is what they say. What do you say to that? Well, a couple of things. Uh, let's first of all get back to the test, because that's where you started this conversation. Um, you know, as far as I understand the history of my country, the concepts of race entered U.S. jurisprudence around the issue of the apportionment of privilege and the apportionment of disadvantage. This was built, this, the, I mean, if you just look at the law, ask where does race actually come into U.S. law? My claim is that this is the issue that was at, in, in being debated. Now, if you accept that premise, then you would automatically say, well, this has to have consequences. And one of the consequences I claim is when I look at uh, education in this country, general public education, uh, it's mostly funded by uh, property taxes. And property taxes are tied to how much wealth a community has. And so it is a true statement that the average African-American family in terms of wealth is, uh, and compared to the average European-American family, it's like a factor of eight difference. This is something one can quantify. That means that the amount of funds available to create schools that the respective demographics are going to have the opportunity to receive an education is going to be drastically drastically impacted. So the test scores that people like to point at, what are they actually measuring? Well, the one component is the intrinsic capacity of these people to excel, but another is the uh, investment that the society has made in these people 
to expel, to uh, excel. Let me give you a very personal story when I realized this. So I spent all my t uh, teenage years in Orlando, Florida. And uh, in those days, and this is like the, uh, I, I moved to Orlando in 63. I'm, I'm a Florida-born person, by the way, but my, my, my life is complicated. But I moved back to Florida in 1963, and I graduated from high school in 1969. And I lived in Orlando that entire time. And for most of that time, I attended the only black secondary school in the public school system of Orlando, which was a school named Jones High. So I went to all black high school, Glenn. All of my teachers uh, were African-Americans. My geometry teacher was an African-American woman named Edna Williams. Uh, I had this fantastic algebra two teacher by the name of Mr. William Saunders. I had utterly fantastic English teachers. Miss Thelma, uh, uh, Thelma Williams was one of them. Miss Cassandra Williams was another. Uh, I had just, you know, black teachers. And as you can tell from the way I speak, I actually listened to what my English teachers taught me. <laughs> my physics teacher was an African-American man. And so we had this school with these fantastic teachers. Uh, that was my foundation. We were talking about foundations earlier. That was my educational foundation. But a friend and I started a chess club uh, when we were like in ninth grade or so, a guy named Philip Dunn. And we gathered uh, some friends around us. And eventually we got a bunch of people playing at a pretty high level. So we thought, we're pretty good. Let's see if we can find some competition. We were the only black high school in Orlando. And so the only way to get competition was to go to schools where European students, European, ethnic European students were the predominant demography. So we um, challenged them. We got a school sponsor. We challenged them. We had matches. Um, we never lost a single match. But what was interesting to me, uh, I think that probably in 10th or 11th grade, is this allowed me to see the difference between my school and their school, the difference in investment. In my school, you might have desks with uh, a, uh, not a the desks were not properly um, um, equipped. We had a lack of enough books for every student to have a book. We had to share books in class. Um, the uh, you know the condition of the furniture was not top notch. I went to the other schools and I didn't see that. And so that's when I realized that my society, in the in the way I said it, was betting against me, because it wasn't investing in me the way invested in these other kids. This investment in these kids shows up in test scores. And so when people start pointing to tests, I said, well, what is it that you think you're actually measuring? Do you think you're measuring intrinsic ability or are you measuring the amount of investment that the society has put into those individuals? Because if you tell me that it's just pure ability, then I know you're not telling me the truth. I know this from personal experience and I can get you analytical data to prove this. That's item number one. So okay. that's okay. Okay. So. No, I, I just want to ask you with, with respect, you didn't answer my question. I was trying to go there, but go ahead and ask I, again. I'm going to stipulate that it's not intrinsic or genetically determined capacity that explains the difference in the tests. Okay. I'm going to stipulate that. Okay, great. Which is what you just said, it's a difference in investment. Let me grant that. Okay. The fact of the difference in the test means that when we get ready to select people for a program of study in physics, 
some are better prepared to pursue that program than others are. And if we only have limited resources and we have to decide who to grant an opportunity to study, don't we need to use the test information to help us sensibly ration those opportunities uh, and so on? And Glenn, I'm going to shock you. The answer to that question, in my opinion, is yes. However, there's a caveat. The caveat is if you recognize that your test can miss potential contributors, not just potential contributors, but contributors whose imagination might cause that kind of quantum leap, big bang phenomenon that we talk, that your test cannot see because of the underinvestment, then the absolute reliance on tests is actually deleterious to the progress of the field. Okay, so here's my to... model. We, we, we economists always got models. Of I course. always got some little, you know, shorthand theory in the back of my mind. So conventional tests like the GRE or whatever, they measure a vec some part of a vector of capacities that people have in the population. And they do that more or less well. But to produce new science or new economics or anything like that, we need all of the different factors in the vector that characterize an individual, some of which are not well captured by the test. Now, if I have underinvestment systematically for the Afro-American community, I'm going to see fewer of them in the part of the vector of characteristics that I can measure with the test. I'm going to see fewer of them. And if I left it at that, they would be excluded and that would be unjust. So even though I know that the test is telling me something that's valuable, given our history and our current social structure, I'm obliged to look further. I'm obliged to look beyond the test. Am I reading you correctly? You are, and let me, uh, let me again relay a personal experience. So in 1969, I graduated from high school, from this all-black high school, and I think I'm probably the first uh, alum to go to MIT from Jones High. And there were test scores. Obviously, there were test scores, right? And so um, yeah, some years later, the president of MIT, who was a, at that time a gentleman by the name of Paul Gray, uh, was actually, you know, uh, was at trying to ask the question, how much should we rely on tests in terms of college admissions? And he explicitly made the following statement about me. This statement can be found in a book called Technology and the Dream, but the statement goes as follows. If you look at Jim Gates on paper when he came to MIT, he should have been someone hanging on by his fingernails. But in fact, he is a superstar. And so, at least in this one case of my life, we have an example of precisely the kind of, uh, what do you call this, a market failure <laughs> in economic terms, that we have one example of where you go wrong if you think tests are the be-all and end-all of determining how to ration, though, I mean, how to ration very scarce um, supplies. Well, well I don't I'm, think, I'm, by the way, I don't think I'm singular. I don't think there's anything very special about me. Um, duly noted, um, I sense the possibility of a fallacy here, however, 
please go right ahead. Well, it turns on not knowing what we don't know. <laughs> so what I know is GREQ correlates with performance in the first year of the PhD theory sequence in my, in my graduate school. It's not the only thing by any means. The things that I don't know that might be important, personality, imagination, uh, various kind of culture of improvisation, whatever it might be, I don't know those things. I mean, I, I actually don't know how to measure them. I don't know what they are. So observing that they might be important doesn't take me anywhere in terms of actually making the decision about who to admit to my program. And if I'm going to use a crude indicator like race, racial identity, do they identify as black or whatever, and, and, and I go by that, I could be making a big mistake. So, Glenn, uh, many years ago, and I, I think you may have read it, many years ago I wrote an essay. In fact, it's my first essay in this part of my thinking. It's called uh, Equity Versus Excellence, A False Dichotomy in Science and Society. And essentially the arguments that I've been giving that we've been, this conversation we've been having are things that are drawn from that essay. And so I also, in this essay, talk about the importance of tests because I, you know, as I said, it's about the allocation of scarce resources. That's sort of the challenge. And so I, I think you can't ignore the test, but what you, I think is a moral position to take is to realize that Tests like all measurements that we humans make are imperfect. We know this in science, for example, because we will have error bars around results. That's something you well know about. Or in engineering, uh, we engineer to tolerances, right? So we know that there are always errors in how well we know something. And so what I said explicitly in this essay is where there are where there is a reasonable belief in error bars, a pursuit of something like affirmative action is a moral thing to do and also the right thing to do in terms of investment in innovation. Okay. If you haven't read the whole essay, I'll send you a link. Now, I uh, recall you presenting it to me, and I do remember looking at it. I'm not going to say I read every word, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's been a while. But I take the point. I think I get, I think I get the point. We're obliged to look beyond these quantitative measures that are crude, especially given the the social background. I mean, it's two sides to it, as I see it. One is about not everybody has had the same opportunity, opportunity, but the other is about people can make different kinds of contribution, and we don't want to deprive the enterprise of science of the unique gifts that they might bring to it. What about merit? And the people who are outraged that it seems to be being trumped by race in the affirmative action debate. You said that there was action and there was reaction. There was conservative pushback against the equity, diversity, and, and inclusion. So what, what do you say to those people when they say science has advanced based on merit, based on the best proposal getting the grant, based on the best applicant getting the position, uh, based on who got the most right answers on the exam that we gave trying to assess who was the most talented prospect. That's called merit. I don't care what race a person is. All I care about in my science lab is having the people who are most meritorious. Well, 
I believe in merit too. Um, but what is merit? If it's just, if it's just, if you define that to be just test scores, then I have no pushback for your argument. If you define merit as the possibility of making outstanding, unforeseen contributions, then those test scores are not going to get you there. They'll produce, look, they will produce people who are proficient at the production of science. And, you know, you've probably read uh, uh, Thomas Kuhn and, and Popper about the way that science, the knowledge in science works. And they're, you know, one of the, and, you know, one of the uh, statements is that the science actually goes through these various phases. It's kind of a normal phase of science where you're making observations and you're recording them. And then you get to these disruptions where, in fact, uh, it, the science becomes in some sense abnormal. And it's at these disruptions that you get the deep innovations that move science forwards. It's if you're, if you're, if you're investing for the first kind of science, then your test scores will get you there. It will never get you to the second one. Okay. I, now, we both know Stefan Alexander, a younger scholar, African-American uh, theoretical physicist, a colleague of mine here at Brown, and author of a book called uh, The Jazz of Physics, and author of another book called Fear of a Black Universe. And uh, he's a very fine uh, theoretical physicist, and he's also someone engaged with these questions about about the diversity of experience having a productive role to play in scientific uh, inquiry. And I've asked him, okay, let's go down the list. Newton, Maxwell, Einstein, etc. Um what was it? I mean, they, they were innovative. They, they were creative. They were, uh, you know, what does Thomas Kuhn call it? You know, the paradigm, upsetting the paradigm. They were, you know, anomalies that upset the paradigm. What was the social aspect of their contribution? Did it matter that Einstein was Jewish? Did his Jewishness factor at all into his uh, creativity? Why then in the 21st century would I expect that somebody who comes from a barrio uh, or who comes from a segregated black urban district is going to be uniquely uh, contributory uh, to, the, to the enterprise when, when I look retroactively, I don't see, do I, many cases of the breakthrough innovators having been uh, shaped by their social as distinct from their purely scientific dimensions. Well, let's start with Newton. So you name Newton, Maxwell, and Einstein. In fact, let's start with Einstein. Uh, Einstein's the easiest one, of course, because he was a minority in this society. And so, you know, he had to, he had fights going home because he was Jewish and all of that stuff. So we uh, know that he was an outsider. And by the, by the way, it's this sort of outsider perspective, which really is the thing that is the thing that we, you know, that's what we're truly, really trying to get at is, okay, you want to get at this person who is the outsider sort of, in fact, Einstein comments that the outsider has a peculiar, often has a peculiar kind of advantage. So he was an outsider. Uh, if we go to Newton, uh, I'm, you know, the only thing I can say about Newton is from his later life, I get the impression that he was uh, unconventional in his thinking. 
and you know, you may throw, the, you may discard this, but he, in his religious belief, he was what's called a Trinitarian, and so he did not believe in a standard picture of the Christian uh, view of the deity, uh, the singular deity. Maxwell, on the other hand, was completely conventional in his uh, religious beliefs. In fact, he was kind of an ultra-Christian. Maxwell died from stomach cancer, and he. And there's a statement about his remaining strong in his faith, even in the midst of his suffering, right? So in your list, at least two of the three, there's indications that there's something extraordinarily outsider about that person. And the experience of being a minority will, uh, in a majority society will certainly kindle that. Now, well, it means that you're going to make another Einstein or a Newton or Maxwell. The answer is no, there's no way that we can say that because that depends on, in my opinion, it depends on serendipity, whether you get that strange confluence of the foundation that's present, the outsider who can bring a very special kind of innovation, and then the knowledge that's at the point where you can see this blossoming. I, I sometimes said that, to me, it often I often think that that uh, genius is actually not a noun, but a verb. It's about a kind of action that takes place at very peculiar places. Yes, some people seem to be more able to do this, but I'm not sure that, I, well, let me just sort of say it this way. The kind of genius you see often talked about in literature or portrayed in um, various productions or books or what have you, that kind of genius doesn't seem to exist in my experience. But there are people who, if I think of it as a verb, I can point to you and say, aha, I can see genius here. Okay. I've taken a lot of your time. I'm, I'm mindful of that, but I want to ask you before we go. Okay. To, to talk about if, whether there are some dimensions of the push for diversity, equity, and inclusion that, give you concern. People <laughs> playing various kinds of identity cards and canceling people that they don't agree with and things of this kind. So I've recently heard this expression, the EDI industry, right? Industrial complex. And there are lots of things there that worry me, Glenn. <clears throat> so for example, a few years ago, in the name of producing more uh, uh, inclusive results uh, in mathematics, the statement was made that it's racist to have African-American kids show their homework. Well, yeah. you know, if I was trying to train athletes, would you say it's racist for me to watch them run to, if I'm trying to train track stars, is it racist for me to watch how they run? I don't think so. And so there, there are these things that have been thrown out there like that as one example, uh, or the belief that science is embedded in the way European thinks is another example. There's a lot of this sort of stuff out there that I find profoundly disturbing and worrisome because at the end of the day, if you, even if you claim you're trying to do better, well, let me put it this way. I have a friend who's an African-American scientist and we have for decades been discussing these kinds of issues around uh, what's now called uh, uh, inclusion, diversity, and equity. And my friend has this wonderful saying. He says, would it work in an athletic department, right? 
would you get it would try some of these ideas and transform uh, and transfer them into a university athletic department and see what it works like and to me this is like a really great test of these ideas so if you know you say don't show homework i say okay then i don't watch my track stars as they're running um if you say um something like um some of the other tropes that are out there um it's racist to demand excellence, right? That's one of the ones we've heard. Then I say, uh, show me a coach who tells a young black kid that you don't have to be the best you can be to excel in any athletic sport, right? So these a lot of these things that people say, to, they claim that they're working to increase diversity, excellence, and inclusion are in fact counterproductive if the young people actually listen to them at least from my perspective. You know who Dorian Abbott is? No, I'm afraid not. Okay, he's a planetary scientist at the University of Chicago who was invited to give a lecture, a distinguished lecture at MIT. Ah, uh, I do know. Uh, and know who had published now. an op-ed in the Newsweek magazine attacking affirmative action as not meritorious. And he was canceled. The lecture was canceled at MIT after some objection because of his views about affirmative action, and he's become a cause celeb, you know, with people saying it's, you know, cancel culture run amok, and it's, you know, uh, what's the question of his politics got to do with the question of his science, and I just wondered if you had an opinion about that. I don't believe in counseling people, Glenn. I, look, many years ago, uh, when I gave a lecture in Switzerland, um, at the end of the lecture, uh, a gentleman, there's a long story about it, but at the end of the uh, lecture, an American physicist came up to me and said, I've never heard a black man speak the white man's magic so well. <laughs> well I, mean, I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the point, is which, which is it, right? <laughs> but the reason I raise that in this context is because I am... I am always willing to have a spirited intellectual debate about someone who disagrees with me. And to me, this is something, for those of us who believe that we've got to change the system to make it better, we've also got to be open to the idea that other people can modify and correct our ideas. And you don't get that unless you engage. And that's, in fact, the danger of cancellation. Couldn't agree more. Uh, my guest at the Glow Show this week has been Sylvester James Gates, Professor Jim Gates, physicist extraordinaire and professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. I thank you very much, Joe. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Glenn. And uh, maybe you'll, uh, if if uh, I cause enough controversy in your audience, you'll call, you'll, you'll invite me to come back. You're welcome back anytime, frankly. Uh, and we'll see. Feel free to comment, and uh, we'll uh, see you next week. Thank you.